Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Smith & Jones. Eric Smith, Paul Jones with you. We get set to close out 2023 with Jonesy. Another best of edition. People seem to enjoy it. Last week when we did our Raptors best of, we've had a lot of great guests on Smith & Jones over the course of the last 12 months, so we thought we would look more league-wide, not just Toronto Raptors specific, and do a second best of edition to close out the year. And I'm teeing you up for this one because it brings us back to March. In fact, I believe it was March 9th exactly when we had on former NBA official Bob Delaney. He's a friend of the show. He's been on with us many times over the years. Even back when the show was called Hoops, we've had Bob Delaney on. Even when he was still a, a working official in the league, he was coming on the air with us from time to time. He's an author. He's a former undercover cop. He helped bring down the mob, like you name it. His story is unbelievable. Go Google Bob Delaney. But I'm teeing you up, not just for Bob Delaney, Jonesy, but you always want to talk about refs and calls and changes to the game and the way the game's being officiated. And we got into a whole lot of that with Bob Delaney back in March. Yeah, we did. And and uh, uh, Bob is a guy that has done, you know, some work for the NBA. He's been, uh, you know, he's been on the court. He's been in big games, and it's it's always good to you know have the uh, the the opinion, the ear, the attitude, and 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 you know the knowledge of somebody that's been there. So it it was it was terrific to to chat with Bob, and uh, we still always joke with him whenever he's doing the movie. We want we want a part in the movie. Uh, Google the story, folks, and you'll see what Eric and I are talking about. I said to Bob, just as long as Eric dies before me in the movie. <laughs> well, I think he pretty much guaranteed that I'm going to die because he called me. I think he called me like a Saturday Night Wise, wise guy. guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wise you're, guy. you're getting bumped off. Yeah, yeah. you're getting. Bumped I, off. I might look the part, but it clear, pretty clear when push comes to shove, I'm dying real quick. All right, our conversation from March 9th with Bob Delaney. Bob and and um, yeah, it. it, it I mean, I'm from uh, Eric and I, well, more so me, uh, I'm, I'm closer to your vintage than he is. And I think about some of the old school referees, the guys that yourself, you mentioned Danny Crawford. I think about uh, Dick Bavetta, um, uh, Monty, when he was officiating, uh, was probably the last of a certain group because you're right, society has changed. And I, I, I look at it where you guys were able to, as you say, diffuse and create some time because my, my line is you can't legislate the emotion out of the game. And how, how would you in your position as develop, a, a de developmental person around officiating teach them to go into these interactions? Fred Van Vliet took a very measured um discussion a very measured statement about his interaction with ben taylor and citing the fact that most of his technicals fouls have been called by ben taylor and the crew he's been on and he felt it was personal and you know the late i watched the late tony brown one night in san antonio uh have tim duncan go up and down him as tim rarely opens his mouth but tim went up and down and tony looked at him and smiled and, I, and we, we ran into Tony leaving the arena. He said, I just had to let him vent. Bob, what would your right. advice be right. to, to these young officials that are in that first phase of their career where they have to be right? Well, I, I think that there's life skills that come, and those life skills you bring out onto the floor. So as you guys have alluded to, my background was in law enforcement. Um, you know, Steve Javi was in sales. Uh, Tony Brown worked for Delta Airlines uh, as, as, you know, so interactions with people. And so it, it, it's a human interaction that's taking place. It's no longer um, referee and player, referee, coach. It's, it's, it's a human interaction. And how do you calm things down in situations when you are in a non-competitive setting? Um, Try and use those same kind of skills. I think working on those skills, working on body language, working and, and looking in a mirror and, 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 and practicing, because confrontation is part of officiating. That's just part of what it is. So how are you going to interact with it? You know, the, people always talk about the block charge being the hardest thing. That's not really difficult. 
The hard part is how are you interacting with coaches and, and players? That is an ongoing skill that you learn from other officials and you have conversations about it. But it's also truly life lessons and life skills. And um, I've had situations where I've not been happy about how I acted afterwards and, and, and shared that with, with a coach. We said, you know, last time we were together, it didn't go right. Uh, you know, I, I'm a big believer in that game, etch a sketch. And, and again, Jonesy Eric, maybe too young to remember it. But no, 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 I, I, yeah. I had one. I had one. I had one. Yeah, yeah. What I always say is that, you know, no matter what goes on in life, Think about Etch-A-Sketch. You turn it over, you shake it, and now it's a clean slate. And that's mm. how I would interact with players and coaches. It's got to be a clean slate. It's not angry at you. It's, 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 the, it's the emotion of the game. And as you said, Joe, you don't want to get the emotion. Motion is the beauty of our game. That emotional outlet and, and the poetry and motion as it's taking place with the athleticism, allow that to take place. So I, I – I, uh, I think that um, what's interesting is that each era has another level of conversation about officiating. Mm -hmm. And uh, years ago, it used to be about officials not being in shape. Well, that's, that's an irritant that's gone. <laughs> you, very, very, you rarely see a, a, a referee uh, at any level out of shape. And so uh, all these different kinds of things that come up, it's, now, uh, how do we interact? And back in the day, you know, you could have a go-round with a player and nothing was ever said of it. You know, you may run each, into each other at the airport or run into each other uh, at the restaurant, and it's a wink and a nod that takes place. Good seeing you. There's no, no, no holding on to what takes place on the floor. Yeah, you guys remember my hair uh, was more like a helmet than a hair, hair style <laughs> because it was sprayed down and so much um, uh, gel in there. Well, I remember walking back after kicking a call. I mean, I messed up a call at the end of a Nick uh, Miami Heat game down in Miami that cost the Knicks the game. I, I wiped out an Allen Houston uh, shot at the end of the game that would have had the Knicks winning, but we didn't have replay back then, and we didn't have all those lights around, uh, you know, around the backboard. Anyway, as we're in the back, I'm walking to the locker room, Patrick Ewing comes up and messes my hair up like we're in eighth grade. And so, you know, <laughs> it's, it's the interaction with the players. And, and I think it's because there was a trust level. They, they know you're not, you're not trying to hurt anybody. You're trying to get calls right. But you have that relationship that has developed over years. And, and just to finish that story, um, so, you know, it caused for the Knicks, I forget what year it was, you know, late 90s or something, it caused for the Knicks not to be home court in, in the playoffs because it was a game on an Easter Sunday uh, when, I, when I wiped out that Allen Houston basket. And the, it just happened to be that the first round of the playoffs, Indiana, and the Knicks are playing. I have the game in Indiana, and Spike is there. And he's yelling at me, we should be in New York, your call. I mean, he is beating me up one side <laughs> and down the other. <laughs> and I walked over to Spike, and I said, hey, Spike, I've seen every one of your movies, and they ain't all hits either, brother. <laughs> Great to listen into a portion of our conversation with former NBA ref, veteran official Bob Delaney. And let's quickly switch from Bob Delaney to a guy, well, he would have been ref by Bob Delaney a whole bunch of times in his career as a player, former Toronto Raptor, but Denver Nuggets assistant coach. And he joined us like on the heels of the parade, the championship parade in Denver. Let's listen in from June 15th, 2023, Popeye Jones. There were a lot of clips going around. A lot of people saw the embrace that you had with Jokic right at the end of the game in, in the heat of the moment with the confetti coming down. And other than, other than maybe the words, thank you, I wasn't able to read lips otherwise. Can you maybe give us a, a little sense of just the, that, that moment itself and, and that, that, that brief time you shared with Jokic in, as I say, the heat of the, the celebration? I can, Eric. You know, it's, uh, because of the emotions, I couldn't say much. So you heard all I said was just thank you. 
you know, thank you, thank you again. It's something that I've been facing for uh, almost 30 years, and uh, the, to see his performance, as you guys know, the whole team, but him as the leader, to see his performance throughout these playoffs was to be to have a seat on the sideline to watch it and to watch teams try to stop him and throw different defenses at him was just so impressive what he did during this the whole run of the playoffs. It's most impressive thing, and I've been watching basketball for a long time, and I know you guys have too. And to be there to see that 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 run through the playoffs is just incredible. Uh, Pop, before I before I get to some other stuff, I, I guess Michael Malone, playing psychologist, talked about you know on the podium, uh, you know we're not stopping at one. Uh, he didn't go as far as three, four, five like LeBron, but he kind of <laughs> threw it out there that, you know what, we, we want to do this again. And the fact that you you just missed them in Dallas, right, when they won the championship, you had just kind of yes. uh, missed them in Dallas. But but you look at what championships teams go through the next year. Like we've had five different champions in the last five years. You know, Golden State, Toronto. Uh, the Lakers in the bubble, Milwaukee, like it just, it just every year. Now you, you guys are, are in that group. It just seems like it changes every year. When Michael Malone saying that, have you actually thought, Hey man, how are we going to do this again? You know, Jonesy, I haven't had time to think about that yet, but uh, I know that, you know, that that's, is good. The card that's good. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm really enjoying this one right now, but, uh, I know the guys will, you know, as we know, summer's already started. You guys have been through this. Uh, our guys will get a little rest, and, you know, they're going to get back at it. You know, our, our starting five is coming back. Uh, we got some young guys on the bench that, uh, that, uh, that we're developing, and uh, I think we're in a good place, uh, you know, obviously uh, with having a totally healthy Jamal to start the season. I think that that right there is going to have a different outlook on us as well. Uh, I think we can get off to a fast start. But right now, uh, I'm not thinking about it. Uh, but eventually, like you said, it'll come a time then when you when you will start thinking about, uh, you know, let's get everybody, you know, motivated and, and to do this again. And it's funny you said that too, Jonesy, because of all the people that I've come across who've won multiple championships, from Sam Cassell that I worked with in Philly to coaching Danny Green, who, as you know, has won three titles, they all said the same thing, and I feel it too. That when you do it once, you just you want to do it again, and it, and and they're they're absolutely right. Yeah. I do feel that way. You want that feeling again, uh, uh, and, and you're you're willing to go through uh, the pain, the heartache of, of of not reaching it to 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 be able to do it again. You're you're willing to 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 do all the hard things that it took to get the first one. Popeye, I, as I'm sitting here listening to you and I'm, I'm going through what's going on in my brain, I'm not even sure what the question is. I guess it's more of a statement. But I think about you, and I, I know you a little bit, not as well as Jonesy does, and, and I think about the, even what you just talked about, the 30 years in playing and coaching, and I think about a guy that's, that's come up through the ranks as a player, come up through the ranks as a coach, but yet at the same time has made some money in his career, has had a good life, has a son who's a professional athlete. you got so many things to be blessed with and, and to be happy about but you were chasing that one thing that you couldn't get or that you didn't yet have, and now you've got it. And and I guess it maybe speaks to Jonesy's point as well, is immediately you think, like, I want more, or I want the next one. But have you had that <laughs> right. moment to truly just sit back, and, and I know it's been a whirlwind these last 48, 72 hours, but have you had a chance yet yeah. to just sit back and, and kind of you know step back from 30,000 feet and go, holy blank, like this has finally happened? You know, um, Eric, I haven't had a chance to yet. Like I said, it's still kind of surreal. Uh, I, like I said earlier, I think all the emotions that I'm having, that I had after the win and what I'm still having is, you know, talk about the, the, you know, not being drafted in the second round, going to Italy and playing for my first year, coming back, coming back from the, coming back from there and, uh, you know, going to the Mavs and then coming up to you guys. Uh, when you were expansion and, and doing those things uh, is what I'm thinking about. All those things that's happened in my playing career, the the three knee surgeries, th- those are the things that I'm thinking about now. And, uh, you know, being a journeyman in the NBA and, and playing on all, all different teams and coaching, you know, 
different teams from going to New Jersey and coaching uh, the Nets before they moved to Brooklyn and things of that nature is kind of all my thoughts are, 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 are that's where they're at right now. Pop, you you use the right word because, like I said, at a different level, when Eric and I experienced it, it was it was almost hard to believe. And, and surreal is a good word. But have you had a chance to talk to your your sons? Have you had a chance to kind of share some of it with family? I know you know the guys are uh, you know they their their hockey careers are are still front and center, but I know they're watching yeah. dad and they're proud of you. Have you had a chance to talk with them and share some of it with them? Yes, I have. And I think the biggest lesson that, that I've tried to share with them is uh, looking at it from a team perspective because we know they're both uh, playing with the Blackhawks and they're in a rebuild. So I'm, I'm pumped that they got the number one pick uh, in Bedard, but uh, hopefully they draft Bedard. <laughs> but uh, uh, I just talked to them about the like the team, like how the team was together and uh, how the vets from DeAndre Jordan and is Smith and Jeff Green, how they led in the locker room and how like everybody was all in. Uh, there was no egos uh, from from one through 17, you know, counting the two two-way guys. And I just talked to them more about uh, what it's going to take to win a Stanley Cup and how everybody in that locker room has to buy in and everybody has to be pulling the same way. Popeye, it's interesting to hear you listen to that because it was just a couple of days ago that the Raptors celebrated their four-year anniversary of their championship back in 2019. And, and as Jonesy's referenced a couple of times, you know, we can live a little bit vicariously as broadcasters from our experience. But I think of the Raptors team and the Nuggets team. And yes, the Raptors had that, that quote-unquote superstar in Kawhi Leonard, but as the Denver Nuggets mm-hmm. do with Jokic, but other than that, it was also good pieces, all-star pieces mixed with role players, mixed with a deep bench, mixed with veteran players. You really do think about the balance that it takes and the different formula, and I don't know if we're now tapping into something in the NBA because we've now seen five different championships in five straight years in this league, and that to me is speaking to what hopefully is then the parity that exists as opposed to the dynasty era that the NBA was stuck in for so long, where it only seemed like it was a couple of teams that were only ever winning the title. It seems like it's up for grabs now if you know how to build and play and coach properly in the right way. I agree with you. I think that you're right. I think so much talent in this league and so many good teams, but you're absolutely right. If you can build it the right way, and again, I haven't mentioned Coach Malone. He was fantastic during the not only the, the regular season, but during the playoffs and keeping the guys motivated, keeping them uh, in the moment, you know, uh, having them prepared for each game. And as his assistants, uh, you know, making sure that we're delivering that ma- message to the team. And again, I said it. And then the vets are also delivering the same message. And I think that, you know, if you can do that, the way the league has gone and the talent, like you said, and the parity, that uh, it's not easy to, to, to repeat. You know, a lot there's a lot of hunger out there. You know, we know that the disappointment of Milwaukee this year. We know, you know, they'll be ready. We know LeBron is going to be chasing it still. Um, but, you know, and there's good young teams like Memphis out there. Uh, but I think that, you know, the way this team was built, you know, obviously uh, with, with Joker and then Jamal and Coach being here eight years, I think that you've looked at it over the years, and I think you guys know this. I've always said that you, you can't buy championships, you know, with, with super teams and things, and I've always said that, and, and I still believe that's true. Even though you look at the Golden State Dynasty, that team was built. You know, obviously they had a Durant. Uh, who who came there and got one, but with, with with Steph and Draymond and Clay and those guys, those guys started young and and they built that team and and uh, they were all connected and they're all on the same page. That was a portion of our conversation with championship coach, assistant coach from the Denver Nuggets, and of course former Toronto Raptor Popeye Jones. And Jonesy, there's so many different directions I could go with this in just asking you about Popeye Jones, but his story is incredible. The perseverance for himself in his own career, let alone obviously the ties to Toronto, but then when you think about the athletic gene in his bloodline, in his family, with his sons and with professional hockey and how he's continued to get back to the sport as a coach and whatnot. Just, you can't not be happy for Popeye Jones and what he experienced finally getting to the to the peak, to the pinnacle with Denver. 
Yeah, no, it, it's 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 great, Eric, that he, that he was able to do that. Um, uh, you know, Popeye had a hard road. I mean, he had some uh, early coaching experience in Dallas uh, with Avery Johnson. Then he moved on to Indiana with Nate McMillan. Uh, he's paid his dues, and it was great to, uh, you know, great to see him finally get to the top. And uh, we know what that feeling's like when you watch people work hard, work hard, work hard and finally get there. So good for Popeye. I feel really happy for him. And, you know, he's, he's also produced, you know, two sons that are high level NHL players. And there's a bit of a disconnect there. People might think, what a basketball guy with, you know, with two NHL sons. But, uh, you know, as you said, it speaks to the athletic gene. All right. We're going to shift our attention from uh, the championship and look maybe bigger picture. Perhaps this is a nice little segue going from the referee's perspective with Bob Delaney, the player's perspective, the coach's perspective, especially a championship perspective with Popeye Jones. And I would say, and I'm pretty confident that I, I, I speak for Jonesy as well, maybe the best analyst, or at least among the top three, five analysts in the game today, former NBA player, former sharpshooter from ESPN, Tim Legler. We had a chance to chat with Tim just about, a, I don't know, around six weeks or so ago back on November 9th, and we just talked about how the game has changed today's game versus when Tim played. Let's listen into a portion of our conversation with Tim Legler. Tim, this seems like a, a great way for me to transition into a real simple question. Talking about being elite, how good, and we're only we're less than 10 games in, how good do you think Wembenyana has a chance to be? Yeah, look, I think, you know, He's never quite seen all of this in one package of this length, mm -hmm. right? We just haven't seen it. Now, you know, he's, he's, he's a guy that's going to – we've seen what he can do handling the basketball and shooting the basketball. But right now, most of what he's doing is simply because he's bigger and longer than anybody else on the floor. Most of it's all height-related. Those skills are there, but he's finding out, like, everything's happening so much quicker at this level with with traffic and where guys are when you put it down and how much more difficult it is to get into your shot on the perimeter when you're now being guarded by an elite level athlete that's six eight and up that can that can get off the floor and contest like nothing you saw when you were in europe and so my point being this we haven't even come close to seeing what this guy is going to be and he's already making his mark on both ends of the floor because he's he's long, he's got great stride, he's got great instincts. I think the most important thing he has is an obsession to be great. It's obvious when you hear him talk and, and you hear about his work. This isn't a guy that's like coming into the league and like, hey, want you know, I just want to be a really good player. He wants to go he wants to be one of the greatest to ever do it. And you can just tell that about him. So that's the first thing he's got to have, and he has it. All the skills are there. Now he has to get used to the pace, the speed, the athleticism, the physicality, like what this looks like. And when you see little splashes of what this guy's capable of, it, it you're talking about somebody who literally might end up doing stuff in two or three years that this league has never seen. I mean, I yeah. think he's got that kind of upside potential. It's, it's almost freakish in, in what he can do with that kind of length and when there's there's a bunch of guys on the court smaller than him and he is still able to to beat him to the spot to handle the ball and get into his mid-range like all the stuff that he's doing and he hasn't even come close to figuring out what the nba is all about or what his actual potential is when he gets that all together um man and i'll tell you what he's also going to do he's going to make san antonio a lot more relevant than we ever thought they would be a lot sooner this looks like it's going to get there faster, and it's not just because of him. They got some other nice young pieces on that team, and they look like they're having a hell of a lot of fun playing. And Pop is giving these guys freedom, but it all comes down to Wembenyama. He has shown me enough to know this is going to happen sooner than I thought when the San Antonio Spurs are actually a very interesting, relevant team again. Yeah, t Tim, you talk about the eras again. Well, I'd have liked to have seen a Ralph Sampson like Wemby in uh. this era. Because they never yeah. let Ralph do that. He play, I mean, he played for Bill Fitch, right? He had to probably file applications to take a shot outside of 20 feet, right? But, um, I, you know, I would have loved to have seen that. But that's, to me, that's, that's what I'm seeing now. I'm looking at a guy with like a Ralph Sampson-type package that's allowed to, as you say, have the freedom. And, and speaking of freedom, 
There's a guy in Toronto, in Scotty Barnes, that looks like he's getting a little bit more freedom. He's worked on his game. Um, you know, he's, it's one of those where he got, as you said, he got to do whatever he wanted, and then he realized they're playing towards his weaknesses. He really worked on his jump shot in the offseason. I don't know how much you've seen, Tim, but, you know, you get a guy in his third year and starts to figure the league out. As you said, things start to slow down. What do you think about Scotty for this upcoming season? Absolutely love Scotty Barnes. I loved him coming out. I loved what he did a year ago, and now he's he's shown me that he has put the work in. He's he's turned himself into a threat from the perimeter. I didn't know if he would ever get to. It was certainly not this soon. Um, the fact that he's up to you know five and a half three point attempts a game. He's shooting forty two percent from three point line. Now I don't know if those numbers are sustainable. I don't know if he ends up north of forty, but he's shown me enough to know he'll be somewhere in that in that area. Like he's he's going to be around that area. And I didn't know that Scotty Barnes was going to be able to do that. He looked to me like a guy that was going to be one of the most versatile players in the NBA. And, and but mainly we were going to talk about his defense and his ability to guard a bunch of different positions and with his length and just his, his ability to handle the ball and make plays and, and, you know, occasionally have a decent scoring night. I thought maybe that was going to be Scotty Barnes' ceiling. And he showed me that that's, that was selling him short. He's going to be better than that offensively. He already is. And it's been, honestly, a breath of fresh air to watch a guy that could have made a ton of money in this league just being what I described. I mean, he, mm-hmm. he could have been like a maybe a slightly upgraded offensive version of Draymond Green, and guess what? You go down as a Hall of Famer, you pull that off. So he could have been very content to be that. He, he obviously wants to be more than that, and, he, and he's turned himself into um, to a scorer that's a legitimate threat much earlier in his career than I thought was possible, if, if he was ever going to be able to do it. Tim, we appreciate the time as always. Love chatting with you, and uh, we'll we'll probably bug you again at some point in a couple of months through the season. All the best, Tim. Love coming on. You guys never bug me. Hit me up whenever you want. That again, our conversation with ESPN analyst, former NBA sharpshooter Tim Legler, and Jonesy. I always love having Tim on the show. Yeah, he's he's terrific. He really, really is um, a guy that you know led the NBA in three-point shooting. When you think about it, boy, what would it be like for him today? As we talked about uh, in this league, where you could really basically shoot it with impunity and not worry about going to the bench. And and as we always say, the mathematicians have got involved. But uh, it's great to hear Legs' view. And I'm surprised, Eric, that he's not on somebody's bench. I'm going to tell you, it's going to happen sooner or later. All right. We're going to step aside for a moment, just a quick little break. I want to take a moment to remind you to subscribe to Smith & Jones wherever you get your podcasts, Google, Apple, Spotify, or otherwise. Download, subscribe, rate, and review. Hopefully you've already done that through 2023. But, hey, share the wealth, man. Share the knowledge. Put the put the Smith & Jones link up in your profiles and send it out to friends and family so we can have an even bigger 2024. And we have a bigger second half of the show coming as well in mere moments as we will look back on What a monstrous 2023 it was for the Canadian senior men's basketball team. It's Smith & Jones right here on Sportsnet 590, the fan and your favorite podcast platform. Welcome back to Smith & Jones. Eric Smith, Paul Jones with you. Subscribe to Smith & Jones wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Jonesy, we looked at the NBA quite a bit in 2023, and we recapped some of those top interviews for you in the first half of the show. But 2023 for a lot of Canadian basketball fans, heck, basketball fans in general, will be remembered for what the Canadian national team was finally able to do in terms of the senior men's, making it to the world's winning bronze, qualifying for the Olympics, hopefully bigger and better things to come at the Paris Olympic Games in 2024. But let's bring folks back to June 15th, 2023, It was actually the same show that we spoke to Popeye Jones. We had a chance to chat with former Canadian national team member, played with the Canadian program for a long time, Carl English, so long that he actually played with Jamal Murray. Now, although Murray didn't end up playing at the Worlds, Murray did just win a title. So we talked to Carl about the maturation and the progression of Jamal Murray as a player and the Canadian program overall. Here's our chat, a portion of it, with Carl English. Carl, good to talk to you as always, and and I want to tap into your uh, your memory, your knowledge, your expertise of one of your former teammates, a guy you know very well, and and we were just talking to former Raptor and current Denver assistant coach, now NBA champion Popeye Jones, and he was giving us uh, his view, his insights on his star point guard Jamal Murray, and Carl, I'll ask you what you see from up close, let alone from a distance, his progression, his maturation 
as a player from the time that you first saw him put on that jersey, from the time you played alongside him playing for Canada to where he is now as an NBA champ? I think the biggest thing for Jamal was, you know, I, I had a chance to meet him, I believe it was when he was 17, 18 years old. And, I mean, this was for Pan Am Games. And when these guys come into gym, you know, you're young and we say young and dumb and, you know, I won't finish the rest of the same, but when you come in there and you got this silly swag about you until you get on the court and then they realize, oh, you know, you're playing against some pros. And on that team, there was some NBA guys. There was high-level Europe on that team. And Jamal came in there and he didn't miss a beat. You know, he had that swagger about him. He had that grit. He had that confidence as an 18-year-old kid, which was very special. I remember looking at the coaches. I remember talking to Jay about him, and I was like, you know, he, he's got it. But a lot of times people say, oh, that kid's got it. But what are you comparing it to? You're comparing it to, you know, someone's there. But when I say he's got it, I'm comparing it to, you know, from a player standpoint, a playing against pros. The big thing is, is, you know, when you're in these moments, you know, you got so much pressure on you and not a lot of people can perform and it takes a long time in your career to perform when the lights are on, you know, under the big stage. But the thing I loved about about Jamal did then was he was ready he was ready to go and he wanted that moment and then I wanna say he put forty on the US at that time when everybody was like, Okay, you know, he didn't he didn't stop. You know, so you're coming into your first national tournament like that with you know, a lot of a lot of pros on the team, and you didn't defer. A lot of times I found myself, I was 10 years playing overseas at the highest level, and then I was starting to defer to some of these guys, and I was like, hold on now. You know, but when you're coming in as an 18-year-old kid and you're not deferring to anybody, you got something special. So I thought I was fortunate enough to see it at a very young age, work ethic, everything you needed to be something special. And I think, I think the story about Jamal is his perseverance because – the funny thing about, uh, I'll call it American media, is they had the kid written off. You know, he, he blew out his knee, and, you know, even right up until the finals, I felt Denver wasn't getting the love that they should have. When they played the Lakers, all people talked about was LeBron. I mean, I knew it was going to be a sweep, right? It's just they were a team. Mike Malone had them, you know, playing as a team. They played this style that, you know, you couldn't guard, basically. So they had no... They had no, they had no answers to any of these these things that they were doing. So the big part of the big part of all that was, you know, uh, how are you going to stop this team? And then they finally gave Jamal and his teammates some love coming into the final. So it's great to see. I mean, he's a hell of a, a hell of a family. He's a hell of a worker, you know. And but my biggest thing was is at an early age you could see something really special with him. Carl, do you think? How much do you think Jamal's style, I mean, obviously well, but when you think about it, him um, and and the way he, he works with Jokic and Mike Malone, who had a stint with Canada basketball as well, you look at what we used to call the European game, the international game. Like, you know, the big guy, come on, get down on the block. Well, you don't, we don't play like that anymore. And how much do you think that is going to continue to influence the NBA because I'm sure when you played overseas, that was more of the, the kind of style that you played as opposed to the NBA game that was different. And now it's look, looks like it's been brought to North America. Well, I think the biggest part about that is it's, it's a team game. You know what right. I mean? Like for so long, right. we've watched these super teams come together and the super team is, you know, they got the best players in the world. So they find ways to win, but when you're watching the game, for me personally, because I played over in Europe when it's all about structure, it's all about style, it's all about, you know, team, whereas NBA is very individual. So, you know, when you watch the Denver Nuggets, like I was having this argument, uh, I love having these arguments with my friends. I, I say you don't know what you're talking about because they don't. So, like, when you're watching Denver, tell me what Miami's, going to scout for Denver like how are you stopping Denver Nuggets now if you're guarding the Lakers okay you shut down one to two guys you take away a few pick and rolls here or there and you have a great plan to go into that how are you stopping Denver Nuggets you got Jokic who's MVP player but you know he plays both sides of the court but you got a 6'10 7 foot guy that leads the break pass first now you got all your role players and shooters then you got a star in Jamal Murray who can take all the big shots 
a gang gives up for his teammates. They all trust each other. You got Michael Paul. They got so many options there, but that's a European game where they all play together. They all buy into the system. They all believe in each other. Whereas I'm not seeing that with the other teams right now. So this culture of building a super team, I'm a big fan of building a team, and and that's what Mike Malone done there. And I don't know if I'm right or wrong, but that's how I'd I'd break it down. That again, a portion of our conversation with Carl English back from uh, June fifteenth, twenty twenty three, and that's one of the cool things, Jonesy, about seeing the Canadian men's program, women's as well. I mean, the women's program has been fantastic for quite a while, but the men's program finally getting there. You think back to so many people from the last five years, let alone ten years, let alone twenty plus years that have contributed to the Canadian program, that have played for the team, that have tried to build what finally has now come in this culmination of the, the, the team and the program finally getting to where it should have been and hopefully will be for not just years, but hopefully decades to come. Well, and Eric, I think that's why you saw that, that, that outpour, the groundswell for, of support for the team and the outpouring of emotion. Uh, when the team finally qualified, uh, you know, like you think of, you know, Kelly Olynyk, uh, you know, guys that, 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 you know, really gave their heart and soul to the program. Uh, a guy like Corey Joseph, who, you know, stepped aside this year in a sense uh, to, to let the young guys take a run at it. Maybe he comes back when, when the Olympics are on. Tristan Thompson, who was unavailable, but I know has said, I'll, I'll play if, if you guys need me. So, it's 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 been terrific to see it, and I I really think Eric, I really think that this this program has has turned the corner. All right, well, the man that helped put that program together, the the the, the current iteration of it, used to play for the program himself. His son currently plays on the team as well. The general manager of the Canadian Senior Men's National Team, Rowan Barrett, from November sixteenth, as we recap the year and more specifically the summer for the Canadian Senior Men's National Team. Michael Bartlett, you guys asked for that commitment after that crushing loss in Victoria. Oh my goodness, I was, uh, it's, it's just, it's like coming back from a long deficit and you get there and you tie it and then the other team goes on an 8-0 run and now you're running out of time. I just, I, I just felt like that in Victoria and you had to muscle up again. And now you have to change coaches because the guy who helped ask for that commitment and helped put some of it in place in Nick Nurse uh, had to step down basically, and now you—it's—it's it's a little bit before the dance, Rowan, and your shirt's dirty. Like you know, you're ready to—you're ready to to go to the party, and and you spill something on your shirt, and you need a new coach. Walk us through what happened there, and how we came up with Jordy Fernandez, and and it turned out so wonderfully for Canada. Well, I think once we started to see rumblings, uh, even during the season the last NBA season with Nick and the Raptors, you know, right away, you know, the antennas were up. And, uh, and you know, just kind of speaking with Nick through the process and what was happening and, you know, how was the discussion going to go with the team? And, uh, you know, at that point, we believed that it was important to prepare a, a, a predecessor for him. And, and uh, he was open to that. We worked together. We looked at different names even together a little bit. Um, he was able to give me any feedback that he knew from the coaching uh, community on those. And I just went on a worldwide search. Mm-hmm. And uh, I looked mm-hmm. at several names kind of all over the globe, all manners of experience. Uh, and really initially the thought was, you know, let's bring potentially somebody in as an associate head coach and uh, that if Nick was able to continue coaching, then they would support Nick, you know, as an assistant. And uh, if for any reason Nick had to step aside, they would be able to elevate into that head coach. And so we spoke to a number of people, and all during that time, Nick was pretty confident that he'd be able to coach the team. You know, it's why we didn't maybe make a move sooner. And, uh, you know, I was on top of it every week with him and we were talking and things were feeling good and speaking to Philly and things were feeling good. And then, uh, you know, once you know, I get a call from him on, on a Monday and he says, Rowan, uh, you know, I can't believe this, but, you know, I've got to step down. And it wasn't the plan. It wasn't what either one of us hoped, um, but it was just the reality of the moment. 
And at yeah. that point, I was down to my final two candidates, one being Jordy. And right. so Nick stepped down on the Monday, and I believe we had our coach signed on the Friday. Yeah. And so we just moved forward. And, you know, a little bit of input from some of our players um, to hear, you know, some of the thoughts. And I think for me within this whole process, this is the most exciting thing was that our players, as much as they love Nick and Nick did great things for us, um, our players are committed to their country, you know, more than they yeah. are yeah. any one particular person. And the culture that we built uh, and what the players believed that they would be walking into, even with a change of coach, was uh, very, very strong. And these players were undaunted. And they said, okay, we got to change directions here. I'm still there. We're going to line up behind the new guy and let's go. You know, by the way, what's his name? <laughs> so, yeah. you know, we, we had to, you know, just kind of yeah. really share. And as much as Jordy has a great reputation in the NBA, I think the players showed that no matter what's coming through the gates here, I'm here and I'm ready. And I want to represent my country here. And, and for me, that was the exciting thing um, as we went through. And, uh, you know, and to use your analogy about uh, going to the dance, going to the party, uh, you know, I think that our players had been to a number of parties with us, right? And they knew right. what it looked like, and we knew what they looked like. And so even if they were going to come in looking a little bit different that night, they were still going to have lots of fun, you know? Right. And, uh, yeah. and they were going to be accepted. And so, because uh, they knew the environment they were coming into and they felt comfortable with that. And so, obviously, there were some questions from some of the players and question marks, and we tried to answer those as much as we could um, at the time. But uh, they were committed from the beginning. And we came in and we, uh, and we ran uh, right from the beginning. Our guys were ready. Our coach came in, and uh, he was in control of the environment from the first day. And, uh, you know, I think with players, it's really important not only what structure you're putting in and how you communicate with them and all that, but I think it's very important in the foxhole, you know, in the moment, right? With the, with the clipboard, who are you in that moment? When all the pressure's there and the fans are screaming, right, are you, are you able to keep your head about you? Are you able to put everybody in the right spot? Are you clear-headed? Are you still breathing, breathing confident? You know, who are you in that moment? And I thought going into those exhibitions, I thought the training camp was great, but then going into the actual uh, exhibition games, you know, in Germany beating Germany and in Spain beating Spain, uh, you know, he very clearly showed to them who he was in the fossil. And I think the confidence in what we were doing just kept growing our players and so uh, he, he jumped in and did a great job for us i was going to ask how important it was to have an nba guy with basically an nba team on and kind of knowing what they're about and formally having an nba head coach i mean jordy's an nba coach but nick was an nba head coach mm -hmm. and we know that move six inches from one chair to the next is is mm -hmm. sometimes difficult mm -hmm. Very difficult uh, for, for most. Um, I will say that uh, it is vital to have a coach in place that truly understands these players. Like, it doesn't matter how good your X's and O's are. If you cannot communicate with them or they perceive that you don't understand them, uh, you will lose all their confidence. And um, yeah. it won't matter. You know, in the fourth quarter... You know, are you going to dive on the floor, you know, to get that ball if you're already emotionally not invested because you don't feel respected or you don't feel like, you know, you, you know you're, you're, you're being given the right conditions to help you to be as successful as you can be, you know? And let's be very clear. You know, we have players on our team that are making millions of dollars a month. These NBA players, they don't go anywhere that they do not want to go. Right? Like, if you see an NBA player somewhere, it's because he wants to be there. <laughs> uh, with no check, 
nobody's paying, it's because they want to be there. And so, uh, you know, they're donating their time and service to their country. And so the least that we can do is to try our best within the resources that we have to create an environment that somewhat resembles, um, you know, what they need in order to be able to perform um, when, they, when, they, when they come out. And so I think that that was vital within the coaching search. But secondly, we also wanted to make sure that we had, uh, you know, somebody that understood FIBA, truly understood it, because it is a different game. It's a completely different game than the yeah. NBA, right? Yeah. There's eight less yeah. minutes, there's different rules, it's much more physical. Like, it's just very different. There's other things you're allowed in FIBA that you're not allowed. You can jump up and hit the ball off the basket, like all of these things. Things that are normally fouls in the NBA are not fouls in FIBA. Um, you know, the, the referees and how they ref, the, the, the fans and how they get involved and how to keep them out of the game, all of these dynamics as a coach you have to be managing. And so you need somebody that is steeped in that and understands that. It's one of the reasons why we hired Nick in the first place because he had coached in the Olympics. He had coached overseas. He understood it. And so we, we, we wanted to continue in that vein, and we believe that Jordy uh, knew that very well. And, and obviously he had been with a championship team in Spain, who's been living at the top of the polls, one, two, or three, for many years. And so he understood experientially what that needed to look like. And more recently, he had coached with Nigeria in the, in the Olympics. And so he had played in lead-up games, and in the Olympics, he had played against a number of these teams, some of whom have the same coaches and the same players. And so he was going to be very familiar with who we were going to play and obviously, with Spain being uh, you know, one of the teams we believed we would have to go through, his knowledge of Spain, um, a top team, the number one team in the world, we believed also would be very helpful. And so, uh, you know, we went ahead and we – and then the last thing, uh, you know, what we heard was that he was really phenomenal uh, as it pertained to his uh, communication and relationships with players. And so – you know, when we had the technical part, the relationship part, the experience, the understanding, uh, you know, now it was going to be, you know, can you take that step, right? Like, you know, six inches over. And, uh, you know, when you are the one answering all the questions and the glare is on you. And from everything I'd heard and from everything that he had uh, shown us in the interviewing process, uh, we believed that he was ready for this moment. And I believe a number of other teams, in the NBA as well as around the world who were vying for his services um, also thought that he could be ready to step forward. Uh. That was our conversation with Rowan Barrett from back on November 16th, and it's it's been a pleasure to watch what he's been able to do as an executive to make that transition, Jonesy, from going as a player with the national team, a player with a lot of success overseas, uh, you know, at various different stops as a professional. Hey, made a transition into his professional career, working in banking and whatnot, and now finding his niche in staying connected to the game with Canada basketball and really helping put all of this together along with his, you know, fellow front office leadership team within Canada basketball. Eric, it, it, look, we're all there. The game, you fall in love with the game. It gets in your blood and you just never want to let it go. And even though, as you mentioned, Rowan did other things when he, uh, you know, kind of let his playing career subside, it, it's still in you. It's still in you. Uh, and, it, and it always will be. Like, you, you get in this game and you, some, in some way, shape, or form, you become a lifer. And it's great to see Rowan, uh, you know, from humble beginnings, uh, rise to where he has uh, become one of the top executives on the international scene, putting together a, a bronze medal team and hopefully another medal team, maybe a gold medal team next summer. That'd be nice at the Paris Games in 2024. All right, let's close out 2023 with one of the dudes that was wearing that bronze medal around his neck, one of those guys that should be playing with the team next summer in Paris. Off to a solid start with the Dallas Mavericks this year as well. We had a chance to chat with... Dwight Powell. And anyways, finally going to make it to the Olympics. Just uh, take me back through the tournament coming together. You guys had a lot to go through with Jordy coming in as a new coach. 
you know, reestablishing that chemistry. Just kind of take me through it up to that moment, Dwight, when it finally happened. And, you know, you, you know there's a, a really good chance, and touch wood here, uh, that nothing goes wrong and you're going to get a chance to play in the Olympics, man. No, it was a huge, it was a huge moment. I think um, that showed in the emotions that kind of overflowed for sure for a lot of our guys. Um, it's been a long journey, and there's been a lot of bumps along the road, and um, we've fallen short many times. And I think that stuck with a lot of us. That stuck with a lot of you know Canadians in general, um, especially knowing how much talent we've had over the years, and and not being able to get to that you know big world stage um, has been has been tough to deal with and it's been something that we've you know had to carry with us every off every summer every time we went with the national team so um, a little more adversity in terms of having you know a bit of a, a coaching change and and style change and um, you know some moving parts going into to camp before for the world cup was you know something i think we're all prepared for i think um, everybody shows up to camp. One thing I love the most about the national team is everybody shows up to camp with kind of the same mentality, which is we're here to win. Um, egos aside, um, everything from outside, we try to block out and, and just try to figure out ways to, to win for our country. So, um, yeah, there was an adjustment period, and um, we got we we're fortunate enough to have a lot of time to spend with each other. We we you know had some games internationally, um, to, you know, to sharpen the toolkit before we made it to the all the way over to the World Cup, which was super important, but we also had a lot of time to spend with each other, which I think was great in terms of building our chemistry and, and getting to know one another. And um, that helped, I think, a lot in those, you know, closer games down the stretch. Hey, Dwight, you just touched on this a little bit, but I, I want to maybe dig a, a little bit deeper, um, especially when it comes to the, the mental aspect of what you guys went through and, and what you had to overcome. You, you just said it seems like, you know, you guys have been delivered curveballs, uh, you know, many times over the course of the last X number of years. I, I Jonesy and I, I, I bring it up all the time. I was there in person in 2015 in Mexico City to see how things unfortunately unfolded. I wasn't there a couple of years ago in person, but Jonesy was uh, in Victoria when things kind of went oh. sideways. And here we oh. are even at this tournament. It's like you guys are running rough shot, you're having a time, and then right when it matters most, boom, there's some slippage and you run into a really good team. And it kind of had that feeling, at least as a, as a fan, let alone as a broadcaster, you're watching going, oh, my gosh, here we go again. But for you guys to be able to recover – to get that next win, to still ultimately qualify for the Olympics, to still end up meddling, what did it take? Who said what? What was it in terms of a coming together as a group? Like, how did you guys overcome yet another hurdle to finally this time actually get it done? Um, yeah, I, I don't know if I could pinpoint a specific thing that was said or a specific thing that was done. I think that's that's what's beautiful about it. I think we all entered this this summer with the same mentality, like I said, is win for our country. And um, we knew we were going to face adversity. We knew we were going to come up against some great teams, some veteran teams. We also know that we were, we are a great team and we have veteran guys that have been through it and have been through that, um, that feeling of losing that final game and, and not making the cut. So, um, yeah, I think there wasn't much that needed to be said other than let's go get it done because um, we knew what it meant to us as a group we knew what it meant to the country and um we had we had bigger goals than than that week so um so yeah I, I couldn't pinpoint one thing it was it was a collective from the very beginning of camp i think we were preparing for that moment dwight how much chatter is there now uh amongst you guys everybody's off with their nba team or you know club team or wherever but it, it, the anticipation, looking forward to next year. Is there? I, I'm I'm guessing in this day and age, there's still a group chat where guys are talking to one another, and there's still communication going on uh, over the course of of the season right now. Yeah, guys are still in touch, and and obviously a lot of our guys are in the league. We get to see each other, you know, at least once, sometimes two or three times throughout the year. Um, so. We're locked in. I think everybody is a professional and, and um, you know, respects the game and they're locked into their teams right now and, and the goals that they have in front of them in terms of their professional seasons. But I think everybody has it, you know, in the back of their mind, that, that little bit of excitement that's going to just build over the season and, and into the off season into the summer um, when we get back together. So uh, it's definitely something that we're all very much looking forward to. 
Hey, hey, Dwight, you mentioned earlier the, the coaching change as well. I don't, I don't know if this is a fair comparison to make, but at least here in, in Toronto, going back to a month ago, a little more than a month ago, at media day, right before the start of Raptors training camp, it was interesting to me hearing some of the players from the Raptors speak about Toronto's new head coach, Darko Ryakovich, and um, how impressed they had been already with him and how – a lot of the players had said, I, like, I'm, I'm singling out even a guy like Gary Trent said, I've had more conversations with Darko in like three weeks than I have with other coaches that I've been with for even three years. And that wasn't a shot at any you know college or professional coach. I think it just spoke to the relationship perhaps and the open communication perhaps that Darko has with his players versus perhaps some other coaches, high school, collegiate, professional, otherwise. Maybe this is a reach, Dwight, but what I see from the outside and again, I'm not talking Nick Nurse versus Jordy Fernandez. I'm merely talking Jordy Fernandez, period. It seems like he is a guy that is very much clearly X's and O's, clearly knows his stuff, a young mind, a fresh mind, but also very much a player's coach as well and fit in seamlessly to what you guys were trying to do. Am I off on that assessment or, or, or you know, give me a sense of your now new, not-so-new head coach, Jordy Fernandez? <clears throat> Um, yeah, I mean, first of all, I'm not a huge fan of, of comparisons, especially with, um, you know, different group circumstances and, and, and a whole bunch of factors that play into, you know, the team's success. And, and I thought Coach Nurse did a great job of, of communicating with us and, and I had a great relationship with him and, and was able to, you know, have that player-coach relationship. And I, I, I felt comfortable in that um, very much so, but... Um, to answer your question, yeah, this, this summer was, was great. I think um, it's very difficult for a head coach to come in and under the circumstances that he did and, um, you know, take the reins of, you know, a group that has high expectations and is hungry to win at the highest level um, in kind of one of the bigger moments in our, in our you know, men's basketball history. So um, hats off to him for coming in and, and executing first and foremost. But, but yeah, he's definitely – just a great human being, and um, I really enjoy getting to know him over the time we had, and um, definitely a player's coach and, and easy to communicate with. And um, But, yeah, in terms of a professional, in terms of coming in and doing his job, it's, I don't think people, many people can understand how difficult it really is to come in um, in the situation he did and, and help us get to where we got after, you know, the, the situations that we've been in in terms of not quite making the cut. So, um, yeah, he, he did an amazing job and I uh, really look forward to, to playing for him in the future. Dwight, you talk about the future and there's been a lot of chatter with, um, you know, who's, who's going to be on the team next year? What, what happens when you know, other guys, you might want to add other guys or what's, what's the sentiment like in the room? Because it's such a high, but you know that maybe there's a chance that we could be a little bit better if, if, if certain guys are willing to play, but there's also a loyalty and a, and a camaraderie of guys that are, that are in the room that made the commitment to get the team where it is. What are your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, that's, it's always tough. You know, there's, there's always the what ifs and there's always, you know, I wonder what would happen or, uh, and that works both ways in terms of what could be the team or the situation in the future, as well as what could have happened if, you know, the situation was different in the past. So, um, I think our guys are locked in on, like I said, their professional seasons right now with that excitement in the back of their mind, and they're going to do whatever they can to prepare themselves to help, um, our national team win, um, next summer so I don't really think um, too many guys are caught up mentally in, in for lack of a better term but that that drama that could potentially you know the guys mm -hmm. that the media I'll say is, is talking about I think um, there are a long long list of players that have contributed to this opportunity that are not getting you know credit right now necessarily to the level that they should um, simply based on the way the FIBA format has been set up. And our our team that played in this World Cup was not necessarily that full group, the team that qualified for the World Cup. So there's there's been plenty of situations where guys have had to make sacrifices, guys have stepped up. Um, and I think 
our our federation has done an amazing job of internally at least rewarding those guys and making sure that um, they understand that they are a part of the national team and and everyone's contribution is key and is is crucial to to us achieving you know our ultimate goal of meddling in the Olympics. So um, with that being said. Um, it's obviously would be difficult for anyone who expects to play to not play. Um, right. That's just human nature. Um, but at the same time, the ultimate goal is to, is to bring a medal home to, to Canada. So um, I think we're just going to focus on that. So what, whatever happens, happens as, as much as that's not an answer at all to your question. <laughs> no, I, I, I know exactly. No, Dwight, I know exactly where you're coming from. I know exactly because uh, you know, listen, on a, on a different scale, and Eric knows I love golf, if, if Tiger Woods can be holding the four major trophies at one time and say, oh, but I can get better, I'm going to change my swing, you're, you're always looking, right? It's the nature of an athlete. You're always looking to get better. My late father used to say, when you're, true, when you're through trying to improve, you're through. So I, I know exactly yep. where you're coming from, and I, and I understand your answer uh, totally. My, 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 my last question is, the world has this perception of Dylan Brooks, and I'll say this. I know Dylan uh, is good friends with his high school coach. Um, the, guy, the guy loves to play, and he wants to win. Um, what, what would you say to people who probably have that different perspective of the guy? I mean, you know, there's a game coming up where Houston's going to play the Lakers, and he's, you know, people are saying, oh, he's chirping again. But, I, I mean, to me, it's the nature of sport. And the guy went out there, and he played his backside off this summer, and was a huge part of what what the team was able to accomplish. Yeah, I, I would say for anybody who has you know anything negative to say or you know wants to talk, to to keep doing that <laughs> because <laughs> it, it only feeds it only feeds him more. It only you know it only pushes him to be greater. So, um, but yeah, I think I've known Dylan for a long time, and and his competitive nature is something that, you know, you can't overlook and it's something that's, you know, it's in your face, especially when you're playing against him. But um, over the years of, of competing beside him uh, with the national teams, I think the thing that people don't get to see is, is how much he really is invested in winning. Um, and, I, and it comes through in his emotions on the court. It comes through in his, you know, tenacity defensively and um, the way he approaches the game. But I think where it's most effective is, is mentally and physically the way he prepares for opponents. Um, I, I don't know if people really understand what kind of detail it takes to be the guy who has to guard the best player every single night and who not only does it but takes a challenge on publicly and, and is willing to stand on his performance um, for better or worse. So um, he takes the job very seriously. And um, also as an offensive threat, being able to, you know, challenge guys on that end of the court, but to make sure you can stand on his defensive, you know, the things that he's saying and preparing for in, in terms of the game plan, the detail he goes into is, is high level. And uh, I think uh, he may not get credit for that, but being able to see how he operates in the, in the highest, you know, um, the highest level of competition that I'll be able to, as, as our, you know, situations are right now with the national team, um, that's something that I think gets overlooked. And, and I think that's where the passion comes through is because he's invested so much in that game. He's invested so much in that specific possession. He knows what to expect. And, and he's been thinking about it since, you know, that game was presented as, as whatever was next in terms of an opponent. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a blast having him on the same team. And it's, it's horrible having him, you know, across the <laughs> That was Canadian forward center Dwight Powell, that conversation from back on November 9th on Smith & Jones, and that's one of those guys. You spoke earlier about the emotion that we saw, Jonesy, when the Canadians won the bronze. Dwight Powell was, was right there, the, the tears of joy that were flowing, and you could hear the emotion and the, the pride that he spoke with in that interview that he had with us. And, and listen, folks, we had him on a game day, I believe, when we did that interview as well. Yeah. And normally players, and I'm not saying this in a, in a, in a jerky way, normally players are like, okay, yeah, I, I can give you five minutes. We end up doing like, what, 15, 20 minutes with the guy? He didn't want to get off the phone because he just wanted to talk about how uh, happy he was and how proud he still was about what had happened in the summertime and then looking ahead to what could be next summer as well. Well, that's a monument, monumental accomplishment, Eric, that, that bronze medal um, and beating Uncle Sam too, beating the U.S. Uh, to get the bronze. And, uh, you know, uh, for a guy like Dwight, uh, you know, you think of, again, like Rowan, where he's come from, a, a Toronto kid, 
goes to school in the U.S., gets drafted as kind of a bit player, advances, improves, and now his national program looks at him for, uh, you know, as a guy for, uh, you know, stability, a guy who can play a main role in making the program great again, putting the shine back on the program. So good for Dwight, and I'm just excited for next summer and, and you know, the potential that this team has and where they might end up when it all shakes down. I'm certainly excited for that as well. I know you're going to be uh, in Paris. Lucky you. Good for you, Jonesy. You're going to be going to watch the games as, as a fan. That's fantastic. I, I don't know that I'll be there, uh, but I'll be certainly watching from a distance from afar and, and cheering on the Canadians, not just in basketball, but across the board. And uh, cheering on a lot of you that have tuned into Smith & Jones over the course of the last 12 months. Heck, over the course of our careers, your support for us and this program has been absolutely appreciated. We want to thank all of you and send best wishes to all of you for not just the holiday season, but for a happy and healthy 2024 as well. And on behalf of our producers, Austin Mackey and Mark Boffel, special shout-out to folks like JR and Tristan and Tom, so many others that have contributed to the program. We thank all of them, the team that brings you Smith & Jones each week. Again, subscribe to Smith & Jones wherever you get your podcast. Google apple spotify or otherwise we hope you've enjoyed this best of edition to close out 2023 and we will speak to you in 2024 for paul jones i'm eric smith thanks for tuning in to smith and jones